My topic this morning is entitled uh, Submission and Honor. And um, so the, this is something that's been on my heart for a long time, um, the plan of submission for the kingdom. Um, and I, let me just start off. Um, submission is God's plan for saving the world and covers all human relationships within the body of Christ. Submission and honor are God's plan for our salvation and for his glory. Now, in bringing up the subject, I'm not naive. I understand that this is a sensitive subject. Sensitive, in fact, because it's been politicized and because, frankly, men have abused it so much, both within and without the church. But submission has always been a biblical requirement that has been, unfortunately, misused and abused because of our sinful nature. And it is particularly keen to me because I'm a child of the 60s, the civil rights movement. I was in high school during the urban rebellions in the country. And this whole idea of submission used to drive me mad. I get so angry when I hear it. Uh, and it's only after years of being a Christian that I understand um, the role of submission for the God's kingdom plan. So when I was younger, race was a big issue. I know it remains an issue today. But now an equally emotional issue is the role and status of women in our society. And so if somebody's thinking I'm about to let your wives stop, I'm not. If you're thinking that Bill's going to say, now tell her, Bill, get her in a place finally. I'm not doing that. That's not my goal here today. On the, but my goal is that everybody whether we're married or single, will understand God's call for both submission and honor in the life of every believer. Um, my goal is that by the end of the sermon, when the, when, when the Spirit grips you with the truth of submission, that we will inwardly feel like grabbing the hands of the person sitting on our sides and getting down on our knees and both repenting and praising God. Not, nobody's going to ask you to actually do that. I couldn't do it because I couldn't get back up. Um, uh, but I'm preaching on submission today because the Bible is so clear on this subject. And we, especially men, again, have abused and misused this issue. So here's the point. I'm going to sum it up, and then I'm going to work it out. Submission requires each of us to live for Christ in a way that is unnatural and uncomfortable. In fact, without the Holy Spirit, it is almost impossible. I started on this when I was in Mission Valley years ago during my quiet time, very early in the morning, nobody else around. I'm in a restaurant there on Hotel Circle South. And I'm praying to God, and I say to God, Lord, you know I'm willing to die for you. And God spoke to me audibly. He said, Bill, I know, but are you willing to live for me? 
I had never put it in that context. Am I willing to live for him? It's much easier to have a one-time super magnificent act. It's a lot harder day by day, hour by hour to live for Christ. So viewed in light of scripture, submission is as much if not more a troubling issue for husbands as it is for wives. But submission and honor are a biblical pattern. The son submits to the father, the Holy Spirit submits to the Father and the Son. A wife submits to her husband. Children submit to their parents. Workers submit to their bosses. Citizens submit to their governmental authorities. Members of the church submit to the elders. And in the church, we are all to submit to one another. And almost all of those verses are in Ephesians, if you want to look at it. We are all to submit to Christ. When God wanted to express his highest description of the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church universal, he didn't choose a political image. He didn't use an athletic image. He used marriage to describe the commitment, intimacy, and mutual um, sacrificial care that exists. Uh, God created Adam and Eve in harmony, to rule together in harmony, to subdue and replenish the earth together, to become uh, great together, to multiply together. They had the exact same status, the exact same task. They were both created in the image and likeness of God. They had the exact same calling. And in Adam and Eve, God created a unity of creation, purpose, and ability. But then the fall happened, and sin entered the world through Adam. Adam blamed Eve. Eve blamed the serpent. Neither confessed to God nor humbled himself before God. Blame shifting. The failure to take personal responsibility is not the, is not the fruit of marriage. It is the fruit of a sinful nature. In the, fall, Adam and, um, in the fall of Adam and Eve, God cursed two things. He cursed Satan, and he cursed the ground. He did not curse Adam, he did not curse Eve, and he did not curse marriage. However, God did describe the terrible consequences of rebellion and blame shifting. That is, the failure to submit and to honor. He said to Eve, as the progenitor of all wives, that wives would be in constant rebellion against their husbands, and that husbands would try to dominate their wives by force, physical and emotional. This was not a curse. It was a description of the consequences of failing to submit to God and to honor him. But God, through Jesus Christ, provided a threefold solution to restore husbands and wives to the original pattern in Genesis 1 and 2. The original pattern was joint sonship, joint ownership, joint rulers, joint heirs, 
and joint beneficiaries of all the riches that God offers. And so here's the divine threefold solution. First, Jesus had to die. Without his death and resurrection, nothing else really matters. Two, wives are to submit to their husbands, not to men, but to their own husbands. Why? For the glory of God. Third part of the solution, husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for it, and to honor their wives as joint heirs in the gospel. Why? For the glory of God. Submission and honor do not come naturally to us. Uh, we chafe at it. Obedience is a lot easier because obedience is something we can do on the outside. We can feign it. But submission is something that happens on the inside, and it cannot be feigned. It cannot be pretended. Wives are to submit to their husbands in the same manner as the church is supposed to submit to Christ. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. You're going to hear me say that in one way or another multiple times during this sermon. So when Paul wrote, um, the Greek word for submit is hupotasso. It is a Greek military term meaning to arrange troops in a military fashion under the command of a leader. In a non-military use, it was a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating and assuming responsibility and carrying a burden. That's what submission means. So God is calling the wife and the husband to equal sacrifice for God's own glory. So submission is part of God's plan for his own glory and for the salvation of all those who believe. And submission has four key characteristics, four. Number one, first and foremost, it must be motivated by a desire to glorify God and to submit to his authority in all things. Second, it is entirely voluntary. When we fall in love with Christ, our desire is to voluntarily submit to him. Christ does not use force, threats, deceit, or manipulation. He uses love and self-sacrifice. The God of the universe voluntarily agreed to be spat upon, beaten, vilified, and then crucified because he loves us and wants us to be with him in eternity. Third characteristic of submission, it is sacrificial. Why? It is impossible to submit without giving up your rights to someone undeserving. Christ submitted to the cross not to save good people, but to save sinners. We don't deserve him. We do not merit his sacrifice and death, but he died willingly out of love for the Father and for us. Fourth characteristic of submission. It is a matter of the heart and will. It is a matter of the heart and will. Now, the first part of God's threefold solution requires that Jesus die on the cross. So, a quote from 1 Peter that I want to explain a little bit. 
For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in turn. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. That is the real solution to the fall of Adam and Eve and to the conflict between husbands and wives. The death of Jesus Christ on the cross for us. Now, the second part of God's threefold solution requires wives to submit to their husbands, but listen to the way it starts. This is still from 1 Peter. Likewise, so what I've just described of Jesus' own sacrifice, the very next, the very next pair, um, verse, it says, Likewise, wives be subject to your own husbands, so that if, even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Now that likewise refers, as I said, to the immediately preceding passage that describes Jesus's voluntary death on the cross. The third part of God's twofold solution requires husbands to honor their to honor and to love their wives as Christ loved the church. In 1 Peter, Paul starts off the same way, talking to the husband. First, he describes Jesus' sacrifice for us, submitting to the will of the Father for our benefit. And then he says, likewise, you wives. And now he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Likewise means that husbands um, show their submission to Christ by honoring their wives and loving them as Christ loved the church. The phrase showing honor is another Greek phrase that means exhibiting high value, ascribing high value to a person. And then the Greek obviously is normally used in association with people of high rank. Like submission, honor has the same four characteristics. That is why the apostle Peter begins this part of the discussion with the same words, likewise, Husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman. So, first, it is motivated out of gratitude for Jesus' death on the cross. Second, it is entirely voluntary, volitional. No one can force a husband to honor his wife any more than someone can force a wife to submit to her husband or either to submit to Christ. It is an entirely self-imposed duty. Third, 
Honoring your wife is sacrificial. The husband must see that his life is tied to his wife in a very special God-ordained way that no other human relationship can duplicate. What sacrifice he honors her, what sacrifice? Well, he honors her by putting her interests above his own. Just as Christ put our interests above his own. The cross was not for Christ's benefit. It was for our benefit. Honoring our wives means to take the same type of, make the same type of sacrifice for her that Jesus made for the church. Finally, it is a matter of our hearts and wills. We put our wills into Christ's hands and say, not my will, but thine be done. Our wives are not looking for that outward acting meant to impress other people. She is looking for that inward thing that says to her, you are the world to me. You are better than all material riches. So I want to share a story that I shared at the wedding of Dan and Marion Hendrickson a week or so ago. It's a small rural town in Africa, and a young man decides to get married, and it was the custom in that area to pay a dowry or bride price. And the typical dowry was two, maybe three cows. And that's for an average person. If the wife was a little less than average, maybe you do one cow, maybe two. The most they'd ever heard of was four. And this gentleman came to the father of his proposed bride and offered seven cows. And the man said, no, 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 that's, that's ridiculous. Four cows will be plenty. And the man whose name happened to be George insisted on paying seven cows. And the wife, the bride-to-be, was very average looking. There didn't seem to be anything special about her. Years later, this missionary came back and he'd heard about this striking woman married to George and he wanted to go visit George because the woman had increased George's standing in the community. And he went there and was greeted by George and his wife, and she was stunning. She was regal and bearing in appearance. And after she retreated to another room to bring something out, he leaned over and asked George, what happened to your first wife? And he said, this is my only wife. I've never had any other wife. And he said, well, but this is what I heard. And he said, ah, this is my wife. Uh, gentlemen, he believed in her work. The value we put on other people greatly affects the way they value themselves. Let me step outside of the sermon for just a moment. There may be someone out there whose 
mother or father or maybe both, or maybe your sibling, belittled you. They made you feel unworthy, unlovely, and you were, they really didn't want to have you around. To that person, Jesus says, you are the world to me. Your value is the blood of Christ. In other words, your value is inestimable. Digression. Knowing our sinful nature, God added something to the requirements for the husband to warn us from abusing our role or being lax in our role. It says, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. So let me explain weaker vessel. Obviously, it doesn't mean physical strength. Um, uh, I, I, I said before that my wife really punches hard. Um, and it's not spiritual or moral strength. Um, in 2006, there were 12.9 million families in the United States headed by a single parent. 80% of those were women. So it is not emotional or spiritual or moral strength in which they are weaker. The wife is weaker, not the woman. The wife is weaker because she has voluntarily agreed to submit to her husband's authority. Christ is weaker, not because the omnipotent God is weak, but he voluntarily agreed to submit to those around him. Jesus acted in this way. So let me read quickly from Philippians 2, uh, verses 5 through 7. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And what it means by this phrase, a, a something to be grasped, that is, he did not desperately hold on to it for his own well-being. That's why when he stood before a Pilate and Pilate says, don't you know I have authority to kill you? And he says, I can call down seven or 12 legions of angels right now if I wanted to. He did not do that. It was his right to do that. And he simply set it aside for you and for me. Christ lived out weakness and utter dependence on the Father. And so he said, I do only those things that the Father tells me. The omnipotent God entered the world through the womb of a disgraced Hebrew woman and voluntarily lived under the authority of his human mother and father and voluntarily submitted himself to a kangaroo court voluntarily submitted to brutality and then to crucifixion. For what purpose? To save us and to glorify the Father. This is the weakness Paul is talking about. A wife voluntarily ties her life to a sinful husband, not for her benefit, 
but for their mutual benefit and for the glory of God. So God added one more thing because he knows the sinful hearts of men. He says, do this so that your prayers may not be hindered. So that your prayers may not be hindered. That word hindered is a Greek military term. Let me explain it briefly. Most of the major cities in the ancient world had one main road leading up to it called the King's Highway. If they were approached by an enemy, the king would send out his people to chop up the road to make it impassable by horses and chariots. That is the word that's translated here as hindered. So husbands, when we do not honor our wives, we are taking the road the, the, our prayers to God, and we're chopping that road to make sure that it doesn't get to God. So, we have to acknowledge that because of our sinful nature, Wives are far more, far more likely to replace submission with contention and fighting, and husbands far more likely to replace honor with verbal, emotional, or physical abuse. But both of those are so far from the plan that God intended when he created Adam and Eve. He created them to share and experience the richness of his blessings together. Now, in Peter's same book from which we have been quoting, I have been quoting, there is this phrase, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he, seeking someone to devour. Now, I want to show you a photograph. If you, can you see that? There used to be a screen here, but I can't, I don't see a screen. It should show three wolves, right? Okay. There's a wolf on the right, and then another wolf who seems to be cowering under the neck of her mate. And there is an aggressor, which is the white wolf. The female is not cowering. The aggressor, in order to attack, goes for the throat. But in that position, if the attacker goes, uh, and that's wolves' first mode of attacking, if, if they can't hobble, they go for the throat and they crush the, uh, the windpipe with powerful jaws. So if the attacker goes for the husband, he exposes his neck to the wife. If the attacker goes to the wife, he exposes his neck to the male mate. This is why in the wild, a wolf couple are a formidable adversary. They cannot be taken down. Husbands and wives Treating each other biblically 
are as a formidable team against any adversary. Now I need to close with um, a story. Uh, the year is 1937, it's the Depression. John Griffith um, has one son named Greg. They only have one child. And uh, John and Greg are extremely close. Mr. Griffith's job is to lower and raise the drawbridge over the mighty uh, Missouri River, which is a, um, a channel for boats commercial vessels to pass through. So at certain parts of the day, the drawbridge is raised up so that the boats can pass through. And then he lowers the drawbridge so that the train, particularly the Memphis Express, can cross safely over the Missouri River. So John and his son Greg are out on one beautiful summer day. It is just lovely. And they're sitting on the observation deck when all of a sudden, to the father's surprise, he hears a train whistle, and he realizes that he and his son have been having such a good time that he let the time slip by. The Memphis Express is coming. He has to run up to the drawbridge and drop the hammer so that the gears will close the bridge. If he doesn't do it, the train is going to plunge into the river and it carries typically 400 people. So he tells Greg, stay here, and I'll be right back. Mr. Griffith scampers up, and just as he gets to the lever, he looks down and sees that Greg did not obey. And Greg had tried to follow his father up from the observation deck to the tower and had gotten caught in the gears the father did not have enough time to go down and rescue Greg. And he had to make a choice. If he doesn't lower the bridge, the Memphis Express with 400 passengers will plunge into the Missouri. If he lowers the bridge, he will crush his son. When we think of the cross, we always think about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. We seldom really take in the fact that the sacrifice broke the Father's heart. When Jesus was on the cross and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And God turned his back on his son because you and I do not deserve to be in the Father's presence. And Jesus is on the cross in our place as our representative. And so the judgment that we deserve, the Father turning his back on us, had to be borne by Jesus. The Father turned his back on his only begotten Son for our sake. We will never know in eternity the pain that our omnipotent and loving Father felt. But this was the plan of salvation. There are only 
So Jesus looked. It is very interesting that the people on the Memphis Express passed by with no understanding what John Griffith had just sacrificed. Don't you be that person. And I keep saying the mighty Missouri, it's, forgive me, it's the Mississippi. Jesus played a dual role for us. As the son, he submitted to the father on our behalf. As the husband of the church invisible. He honored his bride. And whether it was submission to the father or honoring his bride, the cost was exactly the same. Death on the cross. There are only two relationships in the world that are characterized as constituting one person. The Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one person. And the second one is husbands and wives. We are one flesh. I don't understand that any more than I understand the Trinity. I just know that that's how the Bible describes that Dana and I, in some great mystical and cosmic way, are in the sight of God, one flesh. Now, I can't tell wives here what submission looks like in your marriage. I can't tell husbands here what's a, what honoring your wife looks like in your marriage. But I can say this from my own life. Is Jesus worthy? Is Jesus worthy? I have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life that I live by the faith of the Son of God, is with me. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would give us all the spirit of submission for the sake of the gospel, for the glory of your son, that we would seek every day to say to our spouses and to the world, backseat, middle. 